Hey guys, this is our weekly podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We're so glad that you decided to join. We are a church family passionate about seeing people worship Jesus, grow in their faith, and serve those around them. If you would like to learn more about Cornerstone, please visit us at cornerstoneione.org, or you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Well, good morning, y'all. Y'all. I don't really know where that came from. Uh, I do have a couple things we want to start off with this morning, um, just to kind of, uh, I kind of put some road markers out there for this morning. First, I just got a couple housekeeping things I'm going to talk about, and then I'm going to share with you a bribe I'm going to give you, and then uh, we are going to summarize and uh, end the uh, series through Luke, and we're going to hint at the series through Acts, and then uh, we are going to uh, close uh, with the song. So that's what we're looking at. A couple of the uh, housekeeping things. Uh, how many of you guys drop a kid off into the nursery back there? Okay. Six of you. So maybe we should have this, this conversation uh, privately. But just so you know, there's going to be a change in that because what ends up happening is uh, gets a little backed up and crowded in there and, and parents are like just shoving their kids through the gate and not signing them in or out. And then you will put them in there and then you'll have your aunt's cousin's sister come and pick them up and nursery workers like, well, you're not, you didn't check. Okay, just, you know. And so I mean, that's kind of, that's, that's fine. Um, kind of small church stuff. But uh, I think that we need to tighten the screws up on that a little bit. And so uh, this may inconvenience some of you uh, who just like to go and willy-nilly uh, take kids from the nursery. nursery. Um, so the reason why we're doing this is because if you do that wrong, that's a crime. So we want to make it a little bit, a little bit easier. And so right, just starting next month, uh, we're going to start doing this a little bit differently. If you drop a kid off in the nursery, uh, you're going to be handed a keychain with your kid's name on it. And then uh, you, that keychain in your mind, you're going to be like, this is my kid. So I have to protect this. Okay. And then whoever brings that keychain back is the one that gets your kid. So you can then give it to somebody. If you want your sister's uncle's niece, whatever, to go get the kid, that's fine. But our responsibility is we only give kids to people that have that keychain. And so there might be some awkward moments where we're like, oh, like, I know your grandpa, but, you know, we kind of have this policy now where you got to have the keychain. Can you grab the keychain for us and just bring it back? Just be gracious with us. That's so that um, in the end is protecting the kids. So if somebody comes in during service, goes into the back, goes in there, hey, I'm here to pick up Billy. And they're like, this happens all the time. Here's Billy. Uh, and then the kid's gone. That's really bad. So just bear with us and, uh, and be chill with us going through this uh, keychain process. Um, also, how many of you guys put kids over there? That's more of you. You own it. You own it if your kids are over there right now. All right? So if you bring your kids over there, uh, also what happens is you put your kids in the Sunday school classes, and then we stand in here and chat for 45 minutes, and there's, like, workers over there, like, you know, tumbleweeds are blowing wa- uh, around, and they're looking for parents to pick up their kids. And so what has happened is uh, uh, you have given permission for your kids uh, to just kind of leave at the end of uh, the class. And so we're like, we're fine with that, but we also want to make sure you're fine with that. And so um, some of you will be getting forms 
that uh, basically you can sign saying, I give my kid permission after class to leave and then come find me. And so there's a little bit more, um, some, some guidance with that. So there's a couple things. We're tightening the screws on how the kids are being shuffled around here. And then in the end, the end goal for us is to have at some point a computerized system with all allergies and waivers and stuff all loaded into there, okay? So that's where we're headed, but we gotta kind of fix that nursery thing pretty quick because we put like 72 kids in that little thing back there. And we need an easier way to get in and out of there and also have the allergy information and things an emergency contact. Okay, so those are some things that are happening. Also, we can still use some people to step up in the children's ministry and say, hey, I will sub-teach. That means you're willing to, you don't have to prepare or anything. If you're like, I don't want to prepare for that um, for whatever reasons, but I'd be willing to step in last minute teach, uh, this is for you. Literally, we're not going to give you time to prepare. You're probably going to call Saturday night saying, hey, this person's sick, will you cover for them? And then you just say yes, you show up, you look at the curriculum, oh, they're teaching through, uh, you know, the, the parable of the lost coin. Okay, perfect, you know, and you can read through it, oh, I see what's being taught there. Use the curriculum as a guide and then just teach kids what the Bible's saying, you know what I mean? And so we need people to step up and do that. So talk to Jessica, she's on the back of the bulletin, um, if you'd like to contact her, or Jessica at cornerstoneion.org. Okay, now I'm going to bribe you. I did this thing, and this is going to probably ruin it for some of you. I've done this thing in the past when I used to work in youth ministry, where at the end of each series, we kind of do like we'd buy pizza or something, and we'd uh, we'd kind of like debrief what we just went through over the last whatever time. We'd eat pizza and chill, and it's kind of like kind of this little reward at the end of like a series. Um, What I did this time, uh, this wasn't a super long series, but I just had this idea. I was driving down the road, and I so I contacted the owner of Ion Suites. I said, "Hey, if this Sunday." After church, anybody comes in and says, I'm from Cornerstone, uh, give them free ice cream, and we'll come back in and pay it. And so if you, those of you who are like, wait a second, where's that coming out of the budget of the church? The budget's not covering it. This is somebody personal has decided this would be good, and so it's not coming out of church budget. You just get to go and, and eat ice cream. We finished Luke today. It'll be good. And, and here's the single scoop, cone, or bowl. That's what you're getting, okay? He's the one that brought up. He's like, now, do you want to price them? I'm like, I don't think so. He's like, well... What if they get banana splits and milkshakes? I'm like, let's do the single scoop bowler cone, okay? And that includes the waffle cone. Also, uh, we did add anything of equal or lesser, lesser value. We know some people can't have ice cream, right? But here's what I want to do. I want to uh, authentically, I am thankful for a church that comes. We, we go through, like it'll take, I'm going to tell you this. It's going to take over a year to go through Acts. And you guys are like strapping in for it, hopefully. Okay, we did Matthew and you guys didn't leave. You guys stuck in through that, right? We did Matthew, it took like two years to get through that. Uh, and so I really do appreciate and value people willing to come and set aside time to worship God together in song, to study his word and take it seriously as the ultimate authority for which we make decisions in our entire life. I think that's important. And so for that, here's, here's what I'm bribing you with. It's more of an offer. I would encourage you, if you have time after church, after the business meeting, Go over to uh, Ion Suites, get yourself an ice cream cone on the person that's paying for this, and, uh, and just kind of, just do me a favor, just think through, like, what did I learn about who God is, and who I am, and how to live my life for Christ through Luke? Does that make sense? Do me a favor and do that. And so what I'm going to do in my mind, whoever doesn't go get ice cream, I'm going to think, they don't even care about me. <laughs> 
So you guys should go do that, okay? Enjoy that ice cream and think through, kind of debrief in your mind the series and, make, and take that into your heart and be transformed by it, okay? All right, so there's that. We are going to go through, uh, summarize the, uh, the <coughs> book of Luke. And uh, last week we played a video. It was Luke part one. It was uh, chapters one through nine. This week we're going to go 10 through the end. And so we're going to watch this video now. Take a look at this for visual learners. Let's help uh, wrap this series up. Gospel according to Luke. In the first video, we explored Luke's portrayal of John the Baptist and Jesus as the fulfillment of the story of Israel and of God's promises told in the Old Testament scriptures. We then watched Jesus launch his mission and bring the good news of God's kingdom to the poor among Israel, people of low social status and also people who are outsiders. And Jesus taught that his kingdom is upside down. It's a reversal of all of our common social values. This section culminated with Luke showing us how Jesus was a new Moses, about to bring a new exodus by his death in Jerusalem. And so we come to the large center section of the book, where Jesus leads his newly formed Israel on a journey to Jerusalem. This part of the book consists mainly of Jesus' teaching and parables given on the road to the various people he encounters, mainly his growing group of disciples. And in this way, Luke portrays following Jesus as a journey. It's something you do where you learn as you go along life's path. So first, Jesus invites his disciples into his mission as he sends a wave of them to go ahead and announcing God's kingdom. So being a disciple right from the start, it means participating in Jesus' kingdom mission, making it your own. And as Jesus' disciples come back, he then starts to give various teachings about prayer, about trusting in God's provision. It's actually in these chapters of Luke that Jesus talks more about money, possessions, and generosity than anywhere else in his teachings. If following him is truly like being on the road, it should produce this minimalist mentality, creating a freedom from possessions that allows for radical generosity. Another key theme in these chapters is Jesus' continued mission to the poor. So as he travels, he keeps forming his new Israel, and he encounters all these people who are sick or blind. He meets Samaritans who are ancient enemies of the Jewish people. And famously, Zacchaeus, a Jewish man, but who heads up tax collection for the Romans. All of these social outsiders meet Jesus, and they're transformed by the encounter. And so they join his kingdom community, which Jesus describes as a great banquet party. He is here to seek and save the lost, and so he's celebrating when people discover the mercy of God. But not everybody at the party is happy. Luke includes multiple stories of Jesus at banquets with Israel's leaders. And these all become heated debates where Jesus confronts their pride and hypocrisy. And so these contrasting banquet parties, they're captured most memorably in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. So a father had two sons, and one foolishly ran away and squandered his inheritance. But he comes back eventually repentant, and his father forgives him and throws this party to celebrate my son who was lost but now is found. But the older brother, who never left his father, he is angry, and he resents his father's generosity to this undeserving son. In this famous parable, Jesus is explaining his whole kingdom mission to these leaders. His parties represent God's joyous welcome of every kind of person into his family. The only entry requirement is humility and repentance. And so it highlights the tragedy of Israel's leaders who reject Jesus and his upside-down kingdom community. And this resistance to Jesus, it ramps up, and he finally arrives in Jerusalem for Passover. As he nears the city, he's weeping. 
His disciples are hailing him as the Messianic king, but Israel's leaders are denouncing him. And he knows that their rejection of his kingdom of peace is going to set Israel on a road of resistance and rebellion against the Roman Empire. It will bring the city's downfall. And it's that destruction of Jerusalem that Jesus symbolically enacts. As he storms into the temple and he runs out the animal cellars, he brings the sacrificial system to a halt. And he says that this place of worship has become a den of rebels and will be destroyed. Now this act, of course, generates a whole series of debates between Jesus and Israel's leaders, all leading up to Jesus' prediction that the Roman armies will one day surround the city and will desolate it and the temple all within a generation. With that, Jesus retreats with his disciples to celebrate the Passover meal. It's the annual symbolic meal about Israel's liberation from slavery through the death of the Lamb. And so Jesus turns the meal's bread and wine into new symbols about this new exodus. His broken body, his shed blood, will bring liberation for Jesus' renewed Israel. After the meal, Jesus is arrested and he's examined before the Jewish leaders and then put on trial as one claiming to be king. And Luke emphasizes Jesus' innocence. Pilate, the Roman governor, he claims that Jesus is innocent three times before giving in. Even Herod, the ruler of Galilee, finds nothing to accuse Jesus of. But the leaders finally compel Pilate to have him crucified, and so he is. But even in his painful death, Jesus embodies the love and the mercy of God he taught so much about. He offers God's forgiveness to the soldiers as they crucify him. And then, when one of the criminals executed alongside Jesus realizes who he actually is, he says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus' final words are an offer of hope to a humiliated criminal. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And so, with this last act of generosity and kindness, Jesus dies. His body is placed in a tomb, and on the first day of the week, some of Jesus' disciples come to the tomb only to find it empty. And there are two angelic figures there telling them that Jesus is alive, that he's risen from the dead, and so they leave with their minds blown. And it's right here that Luke tells one of his most beautiful stories. Two of Jesus' disciples, they're leaving Jerusalem for a town called Emmaus, and they're heartbroken over Jesus' death. And then suddenly, Jesus is there, just walking alongside them, but they don't recognize him. He asks why they're so sad, and they go on to talk about all their hopes, that Jesus would have been the one to redeem Israel. But now he's dead, it was all for nothing. But then later, as Jesus has a meal with these two, he breaks bread for them, just as he did at the Passover meal, and it's in that moment that they recognize him, then he disappears. Luke is telling the story to make a powerful point about following Jesus. When Jesus' disciples impose their agenda and their view of reality on Jesus, he remains invisible, unknown to them. It's only when we submit ourselves to the upside-down kingdom of Jesus that epitomized in his broken body on the cross, offered in self-giving love, it's only then that we see and know the real Jesus. The book's concluding scene is yet another meal. As Jesus appears to his disciples and he explains to them from the Old Testament scriptures how this was all a part of God's plan that the Messiah would become Israel's king by suffering and dying for their sins and conquering their evil with his resurrection life. And so now, as Simeon the prophet promised back in chapter 2, Jesus' kingdom will move outward from Israel. So God's forgiveness can be announced to the nations and everyone invited to follow Jesus. But 
Jesus tells his disciples, wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Spirit to empower them for this new mission. And this, of course, keeps you reading right into Luke's second volume, the book of Acts. But for now, that's the Gospel according to Luke. All right, give me a nod if that was helpful. Part one and part two, okay, good. I, mean, I almost feel like I should be just pray and leave after that because it was a pretty good summary. Uh, so I'm going to start back uh, in Luke chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, go and open there, get to Luke chapter 1. Uh, and we're going to walk through just several passages, not, not a ton, but just bounce through them, hit a couple, and kind of create this summary, make sure we got our minds wrapped around what's going on here. First one is Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke chapter 1. Verses 1 through 4. It says this. This is the very opening of this book. These are the words. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. We entitled this series, Confidence in the Truth, for that reason. That was Luke's goal. Theophilus, The most excellent Theophilus has heard of these stories from eyewitness accounts. They have put it together and they have uh, sent it off to him or told him personally he has heard of these things. And what we uh, would argue is that Theophilus is paying uh, Luke to go determine are these things actually true? Because you and I, we can identify that we hear things all the time that aren't true. Right? I mean, and... And, I'm, and this isn't like, I'm not trying to, so don't think I'm trying to draw any conclusions. I'm just saying that if you go to Facebook and you read articles, there used to be a time where before anything got published, they had to be vetted and have some level of accolades in order to be taken seriously. Now we have people writing things and, and it looks like a professional f- platform and you're reading it and pretty soon you find out it's some 24-year-old living in his mom's basement trying to tell the world how to live. Or you turn on the news and you hear the same story from different organizations telling two different stories on the same event. Somebody's lying. You ever hear of a sale and you go to take advantage of that sale and it's not quite what you thought it was? I ran into that at McDonald's several times. I thought two for four. I thought I could pick from, you know, I feel like I was lied to when you get there. We are surrounded by, and more and more and more, uh, there was, when the internet was first coming out, I don't remember what year that was, but when the, when the internet was first coming out, there was a famous quote. It wasn't famous then, it's famous now. He said, the abundance of information will not lead to certainty. Because their idea was, if we can gather all the information into one spot, everybody can go to the same place, and all the information's there. We'll know everything. And they thought it would lead to certainty. And we all know now, hopefully, like if you, you know, have a phone that has a bar of service on it, you know that the abundance of information has not, has not led to certainty. So then we can also identify with we've heard a lot of things 
And so we want to be certain. That's what Theophilus is saying. I've heard these things. They're miraculous. If they're true, it changes the entire world. If it's not, I'm going to ignore it and move on. Which, to be honest, is how you and I should be about this also. If this is not true, you and I should just move on with our life. Seriously. And, and even if some of it's true, but Jesus didn't raise from the dead, the Bible teaches us that our belief would be in vain. So if it's not true, we move on with our life. I don't know about you, but I don't need a blanket for difficult times. If this is true, though, it changes the world. It changes your life sitting here today and, and the same type of person on the other side of the world sitting there hearing the same thing, it changes their life too. Because it's not geographical, it's not economical. It's spiritual. It would mean that we are all made in the image of God. It would, it would mean that we are all eternal. It would mean that there is eternity. And it, and it would also mean that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. And it would mean that we, that we all can't save ourselves. Not one of us can. Even if you think of the best person you know, the nicest person you know, the most honorable man or woman you know, they cannot earn right standing with God because they have fallen. And God is so glorious and perfect that that is what He is surrounded with. And we are not that. So then how are we made right after we were, rebel, we were already rebels and sinners? We are covered in the blood of Jesus. And what that means is that that payment for sin has to be paid by somebody else because it's paid by us. We all know that we deserve hell. And, that's, and that is something I think that we, we all need to just be able to just internalize and realize. That you are not good enough on your own. I was just talking to somebody the other day and uh, they had some difficult struggles in the past. And uh, they said... Uh, one of the best books that they ever read uh, to help them through all these mental and physical and behavioral struggles is a book that says, uh, you can't do it alone. And obviously what it points to is not a drug necessarily. It doesn't point to uh, some thoughts you know, to keep saying over and over again, take your bad thoughts and turn them into good thoughts. What it was saying is that we really need the power of Jesus Christ. We need the filling and the power of the Holy Spirit. And if this is true, it changes our entire world. Because instead of listening to everybody else that says, hey, when you're sad, what you need to do is convince yourself you're not sad. If you have bad thoughts about yourself, you need to, you need to think good thoughts about yourself. If you're not sure who you are, you need to live your truth. And then your truth is all over the place, depending where you are, at what point in your life. And then your truth, when you're 18, is stupid. Because then you go and you're 55 and you're, and you're like, oh my goodness, senior year in high school, what a disaster that was. Very few of us are like, man, I really had it together. Like that's 16, 17, that was my sweet spot. <laughs> so what we're looking for then is if, this is true, then it changes our entire world, changes our entire life. Because then we were created for a purpose by God who loves us more than we could ever even exhibit love ourselves. There was a sacrifice laid down for you so great that is considered uh, the most loving act you can imagine, and that's the God of the universe laid his life down for you. 
we think of uh, soldiers and military people and uh, and maybe police that go out and they and they put themselves in danger for us and some of us have even been in circumstances where maybe we feel like somebody has saved our life pushed us out of the way of a car got us out of one of those roller coasters that was going weird but the God of the universe coming and saving you and it says that while we were still sinners God loved us so much to come and die on the cross for our sins. That why we were rebels, why we were sinners. Not when we were like, now wait a second, I need this God. And then Jesus says, fine, as long as you know, I'll come down and do this. While we were still rebels and sinners, He loved us and redeemed us. So, we want to know if this is true also. And, if, and my hope is, even through youth ministry, my hope is not that the kids wouldn't have questions. My hope is that the kids would ask their questions. Because somebody's going to ask that question to them someday. And as adults, like, let's not just like, pretend this is just kids, right? As adults, a lot of us maybe are afraid to ask certain questions. My hope is that you ask your questions because somebody's going to ask you someday. The biggest drop-off rate of church is in college. I mean, we all know why, right? We have these kids in our houses that we raise. We take them to church. They're surrounded by Christians typically. And uh, they go to churches and they learn things, but they don't necessarily learn how to defend their faith. And then they go off to college and they're away from this uh, community that they're surrounded with. And somebody asks them, how can you possibly trust the Bible? It was written so many years ago and translated a bunch of times. We don't have any of the original writings. How can you possibly trust that? And probably half of us in this room don't even know how to answer that. And we have a responsibility, I believe, to answer that. We have to know if it's true. And that's a good feeling to have. And Theophilus had that, and he hired Luke to go and search that out. It says that many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. So there's, there's other accounts. Many people have. They're eyewitness accounts. It goes on to say they used eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. And then he says, Luke says, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so that you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. I want you, so that you can have confidence in the truth. So then he goes on, and this is his account. Now we're just going to hit a couple things. Um, I'm not going to re-preach, obviously, you know, uh, six months of sermons. Let's just hit a couple of the, of the big things moving through uh, Luke here. First, uh, Mary being told that she will give birth and to name him Jesus. We're going to Luke chapter 1 still. Maybe just turn the page. Chapter 30. Nope. Chapter 1 verses 30 through 33. It says this. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her. For you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you'll name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. There are like three things in there that say this is going to be the prophesied Savior of the world. It starts off very early. Jesus isn't even born yet. God tells Mary these, these things through these angels. And then uh, in Luke chapter 2, turn the page again, we see his birth. Verses 3 through 7. All returned to their own ancestral town to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary. Like, I'm glad they included that. Can you imagine? It's like, and he forgot Mary. <laughs> this is Luke. Um, stop there for a second. 
When we begin to think about uh, the different Gospels, one of the unique things about Luke is that he is so precise. Uh, he talks at one point, and we talked about this either last week or the week before, that, Jesus, that, that uh, when Luke accounts uh, Jesus after he rose from the dead and shows himself there were 400 people, and it says in other accounts that he ate fish. He asked me, do you have any fish? And they gave him fish and he ate fish. Luke brings it up, he's like, and it was broiled. We're like, okay, <laughs> glad that's in there. He took with him Mary, whom he, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in snugly, wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth, and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. As we move on, we won't go to those passages, but there's shepherds that uh, that are involved in this, where angels come to them and tell them uh, that. The Savior's been born, and they go, and they follow the star, bring them right to Jesus, again, affirming uh, Jesus as Savior. Uh, Jesus then was presented at the temple in a ceremony, which was great, that needed to be done. And then when Jesus was 12, he was at a temple, temple uh, listening and asking questions for uh, those of us parents. We remember this time as the time that, that the parents forgot about Jesus. Right? They left Jesus. They lost him. They're like on their way uh, back home, traveling miles and miles and miles by, by foot. And they realize, wait a second, where's Jesus? And uh, I've done that like in a Fred Myers or something, but I've never uh, gone miles and miles away yet. But just coming here to church, just to prove to you uh, that we can wrap our minds around how this happens too. I get in the car, and uh, for those who don't know, I have five kids, so sometimes... I, I, just, I just count them randomly, you know, like I'll be talking to somebody after church. I'm like, one, two, three, four, five, okay. And I keep talking. So I get in the car. We're driving away from the house. I close the gate, and, uh, and I look in the back, and I'm like recounting kids. I'm recounting kids, recounting kids, recounting kids. And I'm like, I think I forgot a kid. But what had happened is Emily is helping deliver a baby with somebody right now, and Sophie was sitting in the front seat. So I was doing, as, as I was doing my check in the back, I got that really horrid feeling. I don't know what God designed that to be, but that's a horrid feeling where you think you left one of the kids. And I would have never told Emily about it anyway, so I don't know why I was freaking out. I just went back and got the, whichever kid I lost, I just would have went and got him. But anyway, so that's not, uh, that's not super uh, inconceivable that that happened. And what's interesting, though, is it is constantly documented over and over and over again because it was important to be included in this stuff. That uh, even to the point where we lost Jesus one time. But there he was. Uh, he was in the uh, temple. It says that he was listening and asking questions. That goes back, by the way, that's important. That goes back to the fully man, fully God. There is, uh, because there's a lot of questions. I don't know if you've thought about this, but you're like, did, did Jesus ever like trip and, did he have to learn how to walk? Or did he kind of like come out like wearing glasses, reading books? Like, like what, did Jesus have to grow? Like, but he's perfect, you know, and try to reconcile that. And what we reconcile that with is that the Bible says he was fully, fully God, but also fully man. And so part of that process was learning to walk. He goes to the temple. He asks questions. Now, granted, it does say that when he's asking these questions, that the people that are supposed to be teaching him are amazed at how much he knows and retains and, and uh, that there's something special about him. And in fact, there are times when um, there are temple workers that come out and say uh, special things about him because they know. And even sometimes God's revealed to certain temple workers that, uh, that he is going to be the savior of the world and things like that. So uh, there might be a little bit different, but he's still listening and he's asking questions. We can't forget about John the Baptist. Um, if you don't know anything about John the Baptist... Um, in your mind, if you close your eyes, in your mind, think of a, a, a large man with a beard and 
Uh, he, he comes out of uh, West Point area on foot and he comes down and maybe he's got a couple scars on him and he, and he literally is known for eating crickets and honey. He's like a bear in the woods, like pawing at like, you know, beehives, like just taking honey out and, and eating it or something. And, and he comes out and, and this is John the Baptist early on uh, was, was the one that was going to be the, the forerunner that was prophesied that John the Baptist would come and he would, uh, and he would be a forerunner. He would be in, in front paving the way for Jesus. So he went and he kept teaching this same message, repent and turn to God, repent and turn to God. And, uh, and people would know if they knew the Old Testament that if this the forerunner, does that mean this is the time when Jesus is going gonna, is gonna to now be here and he's going to be in our day and our age? And so he prepares the way, he creates that curiosity, and then Jesus comes in and he begins fulfilling all of these things so that the world would know that Jesus is the Messiah. Because there were other people claiming to be the Messiah, right? Today, there's people claiming to be the Messiah. There's the guy, I think he's in Texas right now. Uh, he drives Mercedes and like, you know, park, you know, he has, instead of putting handicap parking up in front, he has his parking up in front. Uh, huge church, huge house, uses a bunch of money on himself. Uh, very selfish guy, claims to be this, the savior of the world and just leads people into poverty. It's horrible. So in, in that time, there were people claiming to be Jesus the Messiah as well. And uh, so how do you differentiate? These Old Testament prophecies are important now, right? Because then when Jesus uh, is born in a certain city, betrayed for a certain amount of silver, uh, does these various healings that were described to do, he begins to fulfill these over 300 prophecies that confirm that he is the promised one. So there'd be no doubt. So as long as it's uh, documented well, and we believe that it is, it's an inspired word of God. God breathed these words on here. These are, this is not like Harry Potter. This is a whole different book here. This is true. And so the whole world would know. So John the Baptist uh, comes and he's teaching those things. And that's Luke chapter 3. Uh, also in Luke chapter 3, what we see is Jesus now is going to begin his ministry. That's a huge, huge part. Because before it's talking about kind of like the, the story around Jesus growing up, including like some temple rituals and things like that and what the family is doing as well as him going and learning. And then now Jesus is about to start his ministry. And what we see is Jesus... Apparently, near the age of 30, he goes and he's baptized. He shows up for John the Baptist to baptize him. And John the Baptist knows who Jesus is. And is like, I'm not worthy to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. And he's like, he's like, darn it. John the Baptist, baptize me. And so John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. Now, there's a very important part that happens here. If somebody says, where's the word Trinity in the Bible? You will have to say there is no word Trinity in the Bible. The concept of the Trinity is taught there is no word for three in one. So after we saw three in one, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there would be a name made to represent that truth. And that's where Trinity came from. So you would answer, like, well, the word Trinity is in the Bible. But if you want to see the Trinity, I can show you where it's at. And you go to Luke chapter 3, where you would see that the Father speaks down about his Son. The Holy Spirit comes like a dove and lands upon Jesus and Jesus being the Son of God. That's the Trinity, all in one. Does that make sense? Did I say that well? I'll say it again if I have to. Okay. 
<laughs> no, where's the ice cream thing? Let's get going. All right. And so then Jesus goes out into the wilderness to be tempted, uh, and that is in Luke uh, chapter 4. It says this, uh, and this is verse 1, Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. This was an important part because it's going to be referred to later. I know we're doing a lot of jumping around, but that's the point of the summary. Okay, So this is going to mean something later because when we get to the very end of this, Jesus sends Right, And we talked last week about uh, Jesus says for it's a benefit that Jesus goes and the Holy Spirit comes. And we're like, why? After experiencing everything that Jesus did and that we're going to talk about here in a minute, why would it be better that Jesus goes? No, Jesus, stay. Let's broil some more fish together. Let's heal some more people. Let's go and teach them the truth about God the Father. Let's tell more people how to be saved. Let's do that. Don't go. Imagine the power we have now. You just rose from the dead and now you continue walking around. And he does that for 40 days, actually, over 400 people. But what Jesus leaves to go do is be a high priest, where if you read Hebrews, you understand that job. You look at the Old Testament, you see the job. They were to mediate for people like you and I. We would not, in that culture, have been high priests. There was a certain tribe that were high priests, and they were the ones that you would go to them and you would confess sins and you would give sacrifices to them and then they would do it on your behalf because we can't be in the presence of God, right? So then there's a special task given to these people who go into the holies of the holies where they would literally put these guys in robes. I don't, hopefully none of you guys have one of these. It's a robe that has bells on the end. So as you move, it jingle jingles, right? You TikTok weirdos. <laughs> if you know, you know. So anyways, it jingles down here. And so then what you would be able to listen for is when that high priest went into the Holy of Holies, if he hadn't made sacrifices for himself, and if, he, and if he had sin in his life that was unreconciled, he would die in the presence of God like we would. That's why we need a mediator. And Jesus now, in Hebrews chapter 4, well, the whole book, but Hebrews talks about how Jesus is now our mediator between us and the Father. And since Jesus is God, then we have a personal relationship with God. The curtain was torn now. The Holy of Holies is open to us through the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ to the Father. And what he was going to do is be that high priest. And so it is better. And one of the things that is noted about why Jesus is a better high priest, there's other things, but for the sake of time, I'm going to point out one, and it goes back to this, that he sympathizes with us. And it says, because he was tempted in every way you and I have been tempted. So he has a sympathy, a care for when we are struggling in temptation. That's important here. He calls his disciples together, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Bartholomew, or Nathaniel, James, uh, Judas, Jude, uh, Matthew, or Levi, Philip, Simon the Zealot, and Thomas. Brings these weird bunch of raggedy guys together and says... You're going to be my disciples. Walk with me. And he makes this group special and close. And then they are the ones then. And it's also, yes, it is a symbol. I don't know if this is getting a little too in the weeds for us, but it is a symbol of the 12 tribes, now the 12 disciples, now going off into the world to spread the gospel, right? So he brings these 12 together and chooses them. Weird group of guys. Like there's like, and, and I, I get in trouble for this. I'm not dogging on anybody. Say, let's just start with this. I'm a fisherman. I love the fish. And so I don't dog on fishermen. I feel like I'm fairly bright. 
in this culture, the fishermen that were doing it for a, a living typically weren't doctors also, if that makes sense. And so in this culture, not our culture, fishermen are super intelligent here. In this culture, though, not so much. So he grabs these fishermen, right? Like, you know, like smart as a bag of rocks, grabs these guys, grabs a tax collector who everybody hates, and then grabs this Simon the Zealot guy who's like an extremist kind of, and puts them all together, right? And in the, in the back, you always have like Simon, you know, like with a knife, like ready to like jab somebody. And you got these other fishermen that are constantly asking questions like, what did you mean by that? <laughs> and you got like a tax collector that everybody hates. He's like a traitor. Like, why would Jesus care about them? These guys are young also. Grabs these guys together. And Jesus, by the way, side note, Jesus loves to do this. He takes people that on their own, you would never suspect they could do anything great. And then he uses them for great purposes. And then these people, these, these humble servants that God uses that do these great things, they're like, yeah, like this is, this is all God. This is all, this is all God's work through me to people. Like I have nothing to do with this. I am a, I'm a disaster of a human being, actually, if you knew me. So like, right. And God loves to use people like that to glorify himself, to glorify himself. And then, so he starts his ministry, right? So after the wilderness, he goes and he begins his ministry. He does a couple things. He does miracles and he teaches. He does miracles and he teaches. He does miracles and he teaches. And that's like a pattern we see because what happens is he teaches these things that they're like, oh wait, that is true, but the religious leaders of the time aren't saying that. So how do we know, oh my gosh, that guy can walk now. And then he teaches something else like, well, like that is true. But I think that the leaders in our country are going to try to kill. Oh, that guy can see now. That, that must be true. And so he goes and he teaches these things. Uh, like um, for, for one of the examples that, that I love is when he, Jesus goes and he's with poor people or people of occupation that people look down upon or people that are like tax collectors that people just see as like the ultimate sinner. You can't get more sinner than that. And then Jesus goes and he talks to them and tells them how to be forgiven and saved. And people are like, why are you talking to these people? Look at all these prestigious people. Come talk to them. One of the unique things, we're going to, go, we're going to do this a couple of times through Luke. One, the second unique thing about Luke, there is no other gospel that highlights Jesus' intentional interaction with the lesser than Luke. Think of all the people that our society tends to look down upon. Those are the people that Jesus would be going to and not affirming what they're doing necessarily but telling them the truth about how to be forgiven from what they're doing. And one of the things that we see Jesus say in all the Gospels, including Luke, is that uh, it's the person that is sick that knows they need a doctor. All the people that think, I'm good enough, I have this, I am righteous, a.k.a. all the religious leaders, the spiritual leaders. He says, those guys, those guys don't think they need a doctor. They, they're earning their salvation, is what they think. And so he does tell them that you cannot get to heaven by earning your salvation. He says, the only way you get to heaven is through me. That meaning Jesus. There's the only one way. You cannot earn it. And we see that all the time. So the time we are reading Luke, we're like, of course we know that. There's not a person in this room, and I'm talking about you, that can earn your way to heaven. If you think, I'm just going to be good enough and blend in with the good people, that when like, the big arm of God comes to sweep us into heaven, you're going to be like, I did it, and get swept in there. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. 
We use the illustration of the school bus. I feel like there's people that come into church and they feel like it's a school bus that's going to heaven. And like, if I'm just in here at the right time, I'll just, the bus will just kind of take off. And like, yes, I did it. And just like, just keep it down until we get to the gates. It just really doesn't work like that. Here's what the Bible teaches over and over again. If you are a prideful person, you are in a very dangerous situation. Because typically, a prideful person does not want to rely on anybody else for anything, let alone the forgiveness of their deepest, darkest sins. The Bible teaches that how we are saved is by placing our faith in Christ alone. And it is only by what Christ has done that we can be saved, not what we can do. Our best works on our best day offered to the Lord are like filthy rags in comparison to what is needed to be reconciled to the Father. The only way that happens is by this really mysterious work we call uh, expiation and imputation. Sin is expiated, is taken away, and Christ's work, His life, what He did is imputed to you. And you're right, it is completely unfair. We absolutely do not deserve it. That's why Ephesians chapter 2 says that you are saved by grace through faith. Make no mistake. That's how it works throughout the Bible. You're not saved because you're a good person. You're not saved because you go and you confess your sins to a man in a box somewhere. You're not saved because you showed up here. You're not saved because of the big check you put into uh, the offering bag. You're not saved because you go into the trenches of children's ministry or youth ministry. You're not saved because you go and you work with the uh, elderly in their rest homes. You're not saved because you come and do announcements or you preach or you play guitar. You're not saved because you prayed before the service. You're not even saved because you believe in God. You're not even saved because you think that Jesus really did what the Bible says. You are saved by grace and the way that is taken into your life is by you placing your faith, your trust. Meaning I believe what this Bible says is true and I'm going to trust that is the way to be reconciled to God. And you place your faith and your trust in that. And in the end, when you do that, you realize the only way I'm saved is by the work of Christ on the cross. We see paralyzed men healed, demon-possessed people freed, thousands of people fed with only a few loaves and some fish. We see uh, storms calmed, we see blind beggars healed, among dozens of other things. He teaches about loving enemies, being generous with your enemies, not retaliating against your enemies, going the extra mile for your enemies. He talks about judgment, to not be a judgmental person, to allow critique and correction in your own life, and that is a godly thing. And then you change and you take that speck out of your own eye so that you can clearly see into your brother's eye to be able to make judgments with them out of love and help remove that speck from their eye and then shoulder burdens and help them walk into reconciliation with the Lord. Your fruit will be revealed where your heart lies. Your fruit will reveal where your heart lies. Over and over and over again, the fruit of the tree, various trees, various fruits, Jesus predicts his own death several times. 
Jesus teaches about the cost of following him. We see parables, the good Samaritan, the farmer scattering the seed, the lamp, the rich fool, the barren fig tree, the mustard seed, the yeast, the narrow door, the great feast, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, shrewd manager, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, ten servants, evil farmers. Jesus goes on to teach us how to pray. He teaches against hypocrisy. He teaches about money and possessions. He teaches about being ready for the Lord's second coming. He teaches about forgiveness and faith. And he teaches about the kingdom coming. For the sake of time, I'm going to skip to the end. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 verses 1 through 11 says this. In my first book, guess what that is? You're welcome. It only took like six months for us to be like, he wrote both, Brian? Have you said that? Yeah. Okay. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised you, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore your kingdom here? He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. Meaning, we need to chill our turbos and stop trying to figure the date and time out for the hundredth time. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. Where? Everywhere. Did Jesus say, now don't go to the poor people, or don't go to people that struggle with this, or don't go to people that are that color, or don't go to people in that region, or don't go across this body of water, or don't go to people that think like this? Everywhere. In Jerusalem, throughout Judea, which would be a little bit of mind-boggling, Samaria, a little bit uh, mind-boggling, and to the ends of the earth, everywhere. After saying this, he was taken up into the cloud. Which cloud? The Shekinah glory. Went through that last week. All the times we see that cloud uh, throughout the uh, Old and New Testament. It says that while... He was taken up into a cloud while they're watching, and they can no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into the heavens, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. That's the summary of Luke. And then you see how the second part is Acts, and we're going to flow right into that. It's like Luke ended with a very brief description of Jesus ascending. Luke starts saying, hey, this is my second book. This is also to Theophilus. And he came and he appeared for 40 days to uh, several hundred people. And then there's this ascension, and he zooms into the ascension and gives more detail on that ascension, and then we're going to stop there. And the next three weeks, we're going to talk about faith, works, and love and the interactions with them and how they work together and what doesn't work together. And then we're going to start back in Luke and work 
Luke from front to back with a medium tooth comb. What I want to challenge you with is this. We just went through what I believe is an accurate account of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, and his life. And I believe that the thing we should be taking away, this message that is then supposed to be spread throughout the world, and it has come to the other side of the world, which is us, is that we need a Savior to be forgiven of our sins and be reconciled to the Father. And there's this uh, assumption throughout Scripture that we are eternal. That would mean everybody in this room is eternal. And there are only two places in eternity, right? Heaven and hell. And when people say, well, the Bible doesn't talk about hell, so I don't believe in hell. Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else in the New Testament. And so there is a heaven and there is a hell. And the only way to be in heaven, which is where God is, is to be reconciled to him. And we ask ourselves, how do we do that then? I know I'm a sinner. If you knew even what I thought about in this service, you'd know I'm a sinner. Well, spoiler alert, I already know you're a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. Everybody I meet, I start with the presupposition that I'm speaking with a sinner just like myself in need of a Savior. And there is one way to be reconciled to the Father, and that's Jesus Christ. The way to have payment for sins applied to your account, the only way that's even possible is by grace. And what the Bible communicates we do is place our faith in Christ alone. If you have legitimately any questions about that, you need to ask somebody. Is there anything more important than where you spend eternity if you leave this, uh, leave this parking lot and on South Church Street so many T-bones you and your head hits through the glass and you die? Is there anything more important to know before you leave here is where you spend eternity after that moment? You have to ask somebody. And on the back of the bulletin, there are men and women on the back of that bulletin that are committed to that process. There's probably somebody sitting right next to you that's committed to that process. So just ask somebody. Let's talk about this, okay? Let's pray. Father, I think you uh, dozens of times by the time I don't take any more breaths, maybe it'll be hundreds of times, for allowing us to have this word, to have confidence in the hope that we have in you and to be able to give a defense for the hope that we have. Our hope is in you. And I pray the more and more times we show up to church and worship you together, that what will cause our hands to raise or our knees to buckle and worship would be our realization of our desperate need for you, as you say in the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew, that we would be people that are nearly crippled by our desperate need for you as Savior. I pray also that we would never be quenching your spirit in our lives and that we would be constantly asking to be filled with your spirit. God, uh, bless this last song. Bless our weeks. And I pray that we would never be the same when we leave this room. And in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We hope that you found it encouraging and challenging. Please feel free to share this podcast with friends and family, and we will see you all next week.